Hello everyone, and welcome to After Alexander, episode 35, A Troubled Inheritance. Last time, we familiarised ourselves with Antiochus II, and his life up until the point he acceded to sole kingship when he was about 24 years old. At the time, I gave some hints that his accession might have been somewhat smoother than his father when it came to Anatolia. That said, he's probably going to rival Antiochus I when it comes to strife with the other Hellenistic powers. So, today... Let's restart the geopolitical stopwatch and resume the constant conflicts that almost seem to define the Hellenistic world up until this point. As we've discussed, Ptolemy II's attention had been distracted away from the Seleucids until the year 261 BCE. The reason for this was a conflict we've mentioned a few times now in previous episodes, the Cremonidaean War. However, the sphere of the conflict was not in Egypt with Ptolemy II. Rather, its story begins with Antigonus II and with Macedon. Antigonus II's hegemony stretched over mainland Greece, Thrace and Macedon. He had helped factions friendly to him and his dynasty rise in multiple cities, while also helping tyrants to come to power in Sicyon, Elis, Argos and Megalopolis. In fact, only naval domination of the Aegean Sea stood in his way of the utter domination of Greece through control of the Hellespont, and thereby the grain that trickled in from Russia through the Black Sea. However, his domination earned the resentment of the old Greek cities, such as Sparta and Athens, and you can perhaps understand why. After all, they had at one point been great powers in their own right. A coalition led by Athens and Sparta had seen off the mighty Persian Empire two centuries earlier, and Athens had subsequently gone on to dominate the Aegean with the Delian League. Accordingly, a league formed against Antigonus II, led by Sparta and Athens themselves, with the aim of restoring their power to what it had been a hundred years earlier. Now, the chronology gets a bit fuzzy in various sources, Bevan recounts that Athens would initiate hostilities by rejecting Macedon's authority in 266 BCE. However, Granger's chronology would support an earlier date, given that he lists Egypt's involvement as beginning in 267 BCE, while the War's Wikipedia page and Antigonus II's Britannica page both list the start date for the conflict as 267 BCE. By contrast, both the Wikipedia page for a man called Cremonides, who we'll discuss in a bit, and Ptolemy II's Encyclopaedia Britannica entry lists the start of the war as 268 BCE. As if all this wasn't bad enough already, George Rawlinson listed 269 as the year that Ptolemy II started helping the King of Sparta. Given the support of Granger and an Encyclopaedia Britannica article, I am provisionally going to go with 267 BCE. However, bear in mind that, given its tangential relevance to our narrative, I have probably skipped over the question somewhat. Anyway, regardless of the year, war would break out. A quick aside at this point to ask, why is it called the Cremonidaean War? Well, the leader of the Greek rebellion was a native Athenian called Cremonides. 
he wrote a decree which announced an alliance between Ptolemy II's Athens and Sparta, which ultimately led to the war. I should say that the sources I'm using are somewhat split in how exactly Egypt got involved. Ptolemy II's Britannica article is of the opinion that Ptolemy II started the war. However, its article on Antigonus II instead holds that the cities rebelling against Antigonus had the support of Ptolemy. Roger S. Bagnall and Peter S. Darrow state that Egypt was behind the cooperation between Athens and Sparta. The overall picture, as supported by the text of the decree listed by Bagnall and Darrow, is that an alliance was signed between all three powers and their hangers-on against Antigonus II. Antigonus is not mentioned in the text of the decree, but he is identified as the object of discussion by Bagnall and Darrow. Moreover, the decree itself lists the alliance as being against people who have oppressed the cities in question, which seems to euphemistically indict Antigonus if nothing else, given his position of power in the region. The Greek rebels were banking on Egyptian support for the survival of their revolt. After all, Egypt's fleets were once the undisputed masters of the Aegean Sea. And to be fair to the Greeks, Egypt would make moves in that direction. For example, they set up a blockade of the Saronic Gulf, which is a square gulf to the southwest of Athens. In addition, they would occupy an island near the Attic coast, subsequently known as Patroclus's island after the leader of the expedition. However, they did nothing else of any real consequence. As such, Bevan lambasts Egypt for their weak and ineffective involvement during the war. By contrast, Antigonus II would take the initiative Egypt seems to have been lacking. In 265 BCE, King Aureus I of Sparta was defeated near Corinth, and Antigonus would subsequently lay siege to Athens itself. While this siege was still ongoing, Alexander II of Epirus would take the opportunity to invade Macedon. Despite this, Egypt was unable to capitalise on this unexpected boon to their cause. As such, Antigonus II was able to crush Epirus in battle, without even needing to raise his siege of Athens. Aureus I would try to break through the Antigonid lines to relieve the city, but would be killed in battle for his trouble. An alternative telling is that he may have died in the battle at Corinth mentioned above. Either way, Athens's problems would only get worse, as Admiral Patroclus would be unable to break the siege on the city. Perhaps predictably, Athens eventually surrendered to Antigonus, although the dates I've seen for this in my sources have ranged from 263-262 to 261-260 BCE. In the aftermath of the surrender, Antigonid officials were installed in place of native Athenians, and Athens' position was brought down to being nothing more than a provincial city. Athens had been laid low. Cremonides and his brother Glaucon would run away to Egypt. In fact, Glaucon shows up again as a priest in the cults of both Alexander the Great and the brother and sister gods, or Ptolemy II and Arsinoe II, from 255 to 254 BCE. At some point, a naval battle was fought at Kos. Now, the placing of this battle is really uncertain. It is either listed as having taken place in 261 BCE at the end of the Cremonidean War, or else in 255 or even 258 BCE during the Second Syrian War in a few years' time. As far as I can tell, 
The majority seemed to support its placement during the Cremony Day in War, and that's what I'm going to go with for the purposes of our narrative. Whenever it really happened, the result was the same. A defeat for the Ptolemies which allowed Antigonus II to nail down the Aegean and the League of the Islanders within his dominion. Egyptian power in the Aegean would subsequently wane. All in all, the Cremony Dayan War was a failure from Egypt's point of view, which Bevan attributes to the decisive and intelligent Arsinoe II no longer being around to guide her brother-husband. The war would end in 261 BCE, at around the same time that Antiochus I died. The death of Antiochus meant Ptolemy II could interfere in the eastern Mediterranean without the worrying possibility of having to fight a two-front war. As such, the king of Egypt installed relatives in Ephesus and Telmessus. The war may have ended because Ptolemy II was either considering striking out into Syria again, or was wary of the new Seleucid ruler Antiochus II going on the offensive. Perhaps predictably, the next conflict that both powers will be involved in is the Second Syrian War, which will break out in the early years of Antiochus II's reign. However, in order to get to why the war appears to have started, we're going to have to revisit some Ptolemaic family intrigue, and the appointments in Ephesus and Telmessus I just mentioned. Specifically, we need to return to the shadowy eldest son of Ptolemy II I mentioned back in episode 27. As we've touched on before, one hypothesis about the contemporary succession plan in Egypt is that Ptolemy II's nephew, Ptolemy of Telmessus, became the heir to Egypt before losing everything in a rebellion. However, as far as I can make out, the evidence seems to suggest that an alternative hypothesis is actually the correct one. This hypothesis is that Ptolemy II had a mysterious eldest son, also a Ptolemy, who actually became co-king with his father, rebelled in Ephesus, and lost everything. There'll be a more in-depth discussion on the ins and outs of the various theories and the probable identities of the rulers installed in Ephesus and Telmessus next episode. Either way, it is not the identity of the Ptolemaic prince in question that is important for our narrative. Rather, it is the rebellion itself that will be of consequence. As we'll see in future episodes, this rebellion and the events that flow from it will ultimately lead us directly towards the Second Syrian War. So, next time, we'll delve into the life of this enigmatic eldest son of Ptolemy II, and discuss the debated identities of the various Ptolemaic princes milling about at this point in history. Until then, thank you all for listening. Feel free to get in touch at the show's email address for any questions or comments. Until next time, have a great week, everyone. Thank you.